2: The Bone Bat Podcast. We can listen to Steve and Gord. It's a kick-ass digital broadcast where we've got Dick jokes galore. Bone Bat. Hey Tiffany, wanna know what I got? A crushed soul.
3: You mentioned that earlier.
0: Welcome to episode 152
1: of the Bone Bat Show. This is Steve. And this is Guard. How's it going, man? It's going good, man. Let me tell you, we got a film fest that's coming up, and I'm watching some films. Holy cow. Yeah, things are coming
0: to a head. Our deadline for submissions has passed. Uh, currently, we have probably close to 200 shorts in contention. We're not-
1: yeah, we're not going to show 200 shorts.
0: We're not, but that's how many are in contention, and we've got to winnow that down to a manageable 30 or so. And, uh, of course, Supersonic Soul Pimps are on lock, so that is awesome. I can't wait for some amazing funky music. Like uh, Unlock
1: Ness or Unlock Loman or... Something like that, yeah. All right. And
0: the, uh, the theater is preparing. The T-shirts uh, are at the printer now. Uh, and we've got our posters and postcards and promotional materials, which we have passed out to all of our sponsors in Seattle and the East Side. So there's uh, lots of places where you can see the new Bone Bat poster, courtesy of one Mike Hawkins of Human for Now Studios. And uh, I hope you dig that. Now, uh, I was thinking, Gord, we should do the contest again.
1: The contest? What contest is that?
0: If you see one of our posters around town, Take a picture, post it on Facebook, on Twitter, on social media with the hashtag BoneBatFF. There will be a drawing two weeks before the festival, and you can win two tickets to the Comedy of Horrors Film Fest. How cool is that?
1: Free stuff. I love it. Absolutely.
0: And finally, I think it's time to uh, announce our first film for this year. Dude. Announce should this. Should I film. do it, or should you? Do you want to do no, it? No, no. I mean, you found the original film now there's a little backstory here this director is actually the winner of the bone bat viewer's choice award how is that even possible steve it's amazing yes for the short first date uh, none other than steven de amazing very poop-centric, director
1: very poop centric movie <laughs> it was indeed It had that brown sound that you look for. Yeah, and we're not necessarily saying that this feature film we're going to talk about here in a minute is poop-centric. Just that that short, very poop-centric. He
0: went on to do an amazing feature that uh, we almost got into the festival last year, and it didn't work out at the last minute. But this year, we're going to be able to bring this to you. We are thrilled to announce that the first feature for the Boneback Comedy of Horrors Film Festival 2017 is found
1: footage 3d not to be confused with brown footage 3d (laughs) (laughs) you just thought that up i can tell you just
0: started laughing before you finished (laughs) so yes we are so excited found footage 3d is freaking amazing and i have to say now for a film that uses that found footage trope you've seen cloverfield you've seen the blair witch project In my opinion, this kicks both of those films in the ass. It is scary. The characters are funny. It has some terrifying moments, and you will be absolutely thrilled. It's something a little different for us, because honestly, uh, all of our features in the past have been maybe either right up the middle or slanted more towards comedy. This is the first time that we've showed a feature that is more on the horror side, and that is a testament to how damn good this film is.
1: Yeah, we were both, uh, we were both impressed by this film. It, first of all, we gave it a lot of credit because of the director. But, you know, you, you see that found footage thing, you're like, oh, okay, I've, I've seen this a million and 60 times. And you start watching it, and before you know it, you're sucked in. And you're not going anywhere. Th- this is a cool film. You guys are going to dig it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So we're really excited to announce that. And then next episode will be our preview episode. So our plans are to announce all of the shorts, our second feature, and provide interviews with both Steven DiGennaro and the director of our second feature. So we're going to have a lot of great stuff as well as hopefully some awesome music from the Supersonic Soul Pimps. It'll be a great preview for you. So definitely pop in for episode 153 in a couple of weeks and check that out.
1: It's going to be some good stuff. You know how you know you just watched a good Film Fest submission, and that's when your kid the next day comments on how loud you were yelling and swearing at your monitor the night before, (laughs) which that happened to me yesterday.
0: (laughs) Uh, Yeah. That is a very good indicator, absolutely. So, hey, uh, speaking of music, want to talk a little bit about the music we've got this episode? All right, do it. So this is pretty cool from Atlanta, Georgia. We are featuring none other than the band Doth, I uh, I first discovered these guys back in 2007. They opened for Nile here at Studio 7 in Seattle and uh, really dug their stuff, bought their CD at the time, and uh, over the next several years, they would release two more albums, and since then, they've kind of wrapped it up. Uh, the album, though, that I picked up that night at the Nile concert was The Hinderers, which just turned 10 years old. So on that occasion, I got in touch with A.L. Levy, who is the guitarist and founder of Doth, to talk a little bit about both the band, the band's music, its legacy, and uh, what he's up to now. So you'll get a little taste of that. The song that we opened to the show with this episode was called Ovum. From the hinderers, and uh, we're going to have more of that coming up very soon, as well as the interview. So, stay tuned. You know, Gord. I know, Gord. Before we get to that, though, uh, what pisses you off, man?
1: Steve, I'll tell you what pisses me off is being all elderly and having to adjust to life with glasses now. Jesus Christ! I'm telling you, I know you—you've you've worn glasses pretty much ever since you went screaming out of the womb. But this is this is new for me, and I'm constantly misplacing them. I can't I can't do all kinds of things. Like I still can't figure out how to read in these things. I still gotta switch to reading glasses. I am piss poor at getting old. Oh, you That's didn't you didn't get the bifocals, the the progressive ones? No, I got yeah, I got progressives. But like the the super y part yeah. is way down at the bottom of the lens. Yeah, you gotta get used to looking
0: down. And you know what else sucks? You can't lay in bed and watch TV. Because your head is like totally at the wrong angle. So you have to tilt your chin down so it's like damn near in your like throat in order to be able to see something from laying down angle. It sucks.
1: That's it. I'm not going to put a TV in and my then, bed. And then,
0: and then there's the whole like, my glasses always have a smudge on them or rain or something. It's like, yeah, I encountered rain in them. That's Looking fun. through shit is super annoying. (laughs) Right. Oh, God. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And here's a little piece of trivia that not a lot of people know about me. I've got a really, I've got a great pair of sunglasses that I love, that I've had since 2000. These glasses wear, I wear all the time. I can't wear my glasses glasses and my sunglasses at the same time. (laughs) God damn it. Now I go outside, it's a different experience than I've had, like, for the last 17 years going out into the sun. I realize that's not a very big issue for you because you live in a place where there is no sun, but down here, it's kind of a big deal. Yeah.
0: But, you know, with with most glasses, you can get prescription lenses put in them. So you could probably take your sunglasses and do that. Then it won't be the same, Steve. And you're a big swinging dick. You've got all kinds of money. You can afford something like that.
1: <laughs> oh, sure, I could afford it. <laughs>
0: That's not the point. You got a film (laughs) festival.
1: I have 50% of a major (laughs) film festival involving both comedy and horror. (laughs) 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 Excuse me, I'm going to drink my generic bubble water with my pinky out. (laughs) Shit. Oh, man.
0: Yeah, totally glasses are a pain in the ass. And uh, I second you on that deal. And you can go the contacts route. But it's really not much better, because then your eyes are, like, itchy all day. And and when you have to get progressive contacts, so they make contacts that do that as well, right? And so what you can crap? see up close, and you can see far away, but neither of them you can do exactly right. Or one of them you can do exactly right. Great. <laughs> right. yeah. Can you put them in upside down? No, because it's like, imagine the Target logo, or Captain America's
1: Shield. So you I can, you, you know, can say concentric circles. It's yeah. okay. I'm a big boy.
0: Yeah, I don't know what that means. But, uh <laughs> yeah, when you look through them, you you can look down and you can read. And you can look up and you can see something far away. But, like, if your eyes aren't exactly the same, they can't dial in the prescription right. So, like, one eye will be blurry. It's fucking annoying. Even even that's terrible.
1: That sounds awful. I'm it's a poor that. customer experience is what I'm saying. God. How have you gone through your whole life with having to deal with this and not just eat it your gun? It wasn't my whole life. It wasn't until I was in college. So. Oh, okay. Yeah, I How have you gone more than six months? <laughs> no, honestly, and then like working the distance my monitor is from my big stupid head mm-hmm. apparently is in this no zone for the glasses where you just, it just doesn't work there at all. So <laughs> I, I take them off eight hours a day and then I, lo- then I lose them.
0: Yeah. Can but you can you see up close if you take them off? Can you still like look at a computer screen or read or? Because that's look at a computer one, screen, yeah. Read no. the one saving grace is that I'm f- most I'm pretty much farsighted completely, so I can read up close just fine. So at oh, least I, I, I got to you know. Take my lenses off for reading
1: and stuff like that. It's not too bad. Now for like drawing and reading and stuff, I just put my reading glasses back on and screw it. I'm, <laughs> my fancy dancy progressive fuck those things oh that sucks
0: yeah well that kind of fits our next song dude
1: yeah what's the next song
0: Steve from 2007 The Hinderers by Doth this is From the Blind ah Once again, that was From the Blind, taken from The Hinderers, the 2007 release from Doth. And joining me now, I am thrilled to say, is the guitarist and founder of Doth, producer engineer, as well as podcaster, who hosts Nail the Mix and Unstoppable Recording Machine, uh, A.L. Levy. How you doing, man?
3: Great. Thank you for having me.
0: Well, thank you again so much for joining us on the show. I saw your post the other day that uh, the Hinderers, the 2007 release from Doth that we were just talking about, uh, just turned 10 years old. And I was like, holy crap, has it been 10 years already? I, I first saw you guys when you opened for Nile here in Seattle at Studio 7 in, I think, July of 2007. At that time, I probably shook your hand and bought the Hinderers from you. But, uh, you know, a- after that, uh, I have bought your CDs, but I hadn't seen you again, and I kind of wanted to share the story of Doth with our audience. So thanks.
3: Wow. I actually do remember that show. That was a pretty wild show. That was a Um, crazy
0: show. Great night.
3: Yeah, that was actually when I decided that I loved Seattle, was at that (laughs) show.
0: (laughs) What was it about Seattle that made you love it so?
3: From the perspective of a touring musician who had been around quite a bit at that point Mm -hmm. there was something there there was something about how friendly the people were combined with how crazy they went at the show how much merch they bought and how good-looking the women in the crowd were like you put (laughs) all of it together and I was like wow I kind of like this place
0: (laughs) nice I don't recall specifically but my guess it was like a Wednesday night show because it seems like all the metal shows here are in the middle of the week, because people want to be in Chicago or LA on the weekend. So we always get like the big tours hit midweek.
3: Well, it was an off date from Ozfest, if I remember correctly. That's all I. That's all I know is uh, we were probably playing the gorge. Oh,
0: okay, yeah, sure.
3: Um, the night before, or the day before, or the next day, something like that, and <laughs> um, because we were doing off dates with Nile. Sure. So I'm pretty sure that's when it was. I have no idea what day of the week it was (laughs) or anything like that.
0: (laughs) But it kind of goes to show, if you had a great turnout that night, it's because metal fans turn out in Seattle on a midweek show. So anyway, that was the point I was getting at.
3: Well, go Seattle. I I really do (laughs) like it there.
0: So why don't you tell us a little bit about how Doth got started? I understand that you guys were called Nap originally.
3: Yep, Uh, we were called Nap originally. Basically... I was going to school in Boston, at Berkeley, and I was in a rock band, and we were trying to do radio stuff. Mm-hmm. I guess my heart was always in the heavier stuff, but I was just trying different things, and every time I'd come home from school, I'd get together with this dude, Mike Cameron, that I started Doth with, and we would write, and we were writing this electronic death metal stuff, And it was just better than my rock band. It was just, it just was. I I just had this feeling that if I pursued it, I could turn it into something. Whereas with the rock band, which was doing radio rock stuff, it just felt like pulling teeth. It just was not, it was a square peg, round hole type of situation. Whereas with the stuff that Mike and I were writing, it just made sense. And I had never really heard anything quite like it before mm-hmm. I knew that we had something different I knew that we had something new and I just knew I had this weird certainty that if I just moved back to Atlanta and pursued it with him that we could make something happen and I don't advise listeners to uh, to just make stupid decisions like that because <laughs> in all likelihood we would have failed, you know, mm-hmm. but um, but we didn't because I'm a maniac. <laughs> it, but it, all in all, it was a dumb decision.
0: What was the scene <laughs> like in Atlanta at the time? Like probably Mastodon was just a couple of years ahead of you, right?
3: Yeah, Mastodon were and still are the Atlanta band that everybody worships. And with good reason. They're a great <laughs> band. They've always been a great band. They got big or known, I'd say a few years before Doth got signed, and I just remember that it was it was kind of crushing. And so basically if you didn't sound like Mastodon or play like the the worst gore grind or black metal kind of stuff. Like the most extreme of the extreme of the extreme, nobody wanted to have anything to do with you. So we had the choruses and catchy riffs and a lot of electronica. And back then that was a no, no nowadays you can throw anything you want into metal right. and, and people are okay with it. But in the year 2000, 2001, 2002 metal was just starting to kind of come back. It kind of died off for a little while and, you know, Slipknot just got big and mm-hmm. they were, becoming this gateway drug or gateway (laughs) band for a whole new generation of metalheads. But that was going to take a little while to develop. In the meantime, we had these underground scenes that were very, very purist, very elitist. And that's kind of what Atlanta was all about, either that or Mastodon. And we fit in neither. So they weren't very cool to us, which was probably actually for the better, because we made a point of playing everywhere but Atlanta, which made us look like a more active band. It made us seem bigger than we actually were, which became very advantageous when we were talking to labels a few years later.
0: Okay. Was it difficult to get signed, or did it kind of build because of the touring and people started pursuing you?
3: Well, I mean, what do you mean by difficult?
0: (laughs) Well, I mean, some bands go for decades with never being able to you know sign a contract and they they put out uh, independent releases and you know kind of build that way
3: okay well i approached it in a very strategic sort of way whereas i did a lot of research and i learned about exactly what it is labels are looking for at least back then mm-hmm. what they were looking for i talked to a bunch of people in the industry and i read a bunch of books and just studied and studied and studied. If I could find interviews with A&R guys, I would read them, watch them, and I studied business and just studied and learned what it would take to actually get assigned, like what is in it for them, what is it that they're looking for. And I approached, once I had that kind of figured out, I approached our plan of attack. I kind of tailored it to that. So whereas I think... A lot of bands just, they just go. you know They follow what they think are the steps, or back then they would, which is, put out a demo or an album, play lots of shows, sell some tickets, play maybe bigger shows, put out another one, rinse, repeat, maybe play out of town once or twice, right. rinse, repeat, and hopefully one day they'll get famous. That's not how I went about it. I knew that labels are looking at it like an investment, I knew that you had to show that you were kind of a viable business in advance. You had to show that you could travel because back then touring, touring is important now, but back then it was far more important. So I needed to show that we were able to uh, get around. Um, And I knew that with labels, it was important that they hear from you from four different sources, stuff like that, like Mm. that you, they don't just get approached by you. So I made a point of, making sure that we were coming in from all sides. So this was difficult. Yes, it was a lot of hard work. It didn't just happen easily, Mm
4: -hmm.
3: but it wasn't aimless. So I think both roads are difficult, but one of them is just an aimless wandering where you kind of hope for the best.
4: right? and,
3: And you might luck into a record deal where ours was difficult because well, I knew what we needed to do, And so it was like moving a mountain, but at least I knew the mountain was there and that it had to be moved.
0: Right. Huh, interesting. Okay.
3: So, yeah, it was difficult, but at least there was a plan and a structure to the plan. And it worked.
0: Yeah, well, clearly. (laughs) So tell me a little bit about the first release, Futility. You mentioned uh, that that one isn't really worth looking up.
3: No. um, That was a weird period. Mike and I had written like an album under dirt nap with all the same songs as futility oh okay however the original recordings were on the dirt nap demos and they were really low quality and we kind of did them in a bedroom with through a sound blaster with all fake drums and like an original pod And they sounded kind of crappy. We didn't know shit about mixing. Mm -hmm. And they sucked sonically. (laughs) But they just felt great compared to Futility. When we went to re-record them, we tried to put real drums on them and to just like redo them. However, I wasn't good at production yet. And so it went from us being really, really comfortable with our demo rig and just having a really inspired time to us trying to do a real production with a studio I had bought before I really knew what I was doing, and we tried to turn the songs into stuff that they weren't. They were never really played with a live band before, and so they just felt weird, and it just wasn't as good, (laughs) let's put it that way. So the original versions were much, much better. And that always kind of bummed me out about futility
0: so so you were sort of like teaching yourself this whole other discipline at the same time you're trying to record the album that that's I can understand why that would be challenging to to make it pay off
3: yeah well the thing is that the recording studio was both my backup plan and part of the plan if that makes sense um, back when I was starting the studio the idea was I would use the studio to help grow the band, and I would use the band to help grow the studio, and they could grow together. When I first started the studio, I had no idea how difficult that would be either. Mm -hmm. I just started it, and part of it was because I priced out how expensive it would be to record our stuff with somebody else. I was like, why don't I just do this myself? So I... Didn't know, though, that it was going to take, like, 10 years to get good at it. <laughs> right, uh, <laughs> sure. So our demos on the on the demo rig ended up sounding better at first. It was this weird thing. It was weird. It's, like, one of these, like, very good at making the bad stuff sound pretty decent, but not that good at making the great stuff sound passable.
0: <laughs> Interesting. So how did things change then? When you finally got signed and you had the opportunity to go into the studio for The Hinderers.
3: Well, it didn't exactly work that way. Um, with The Hinderers, I was, okay, two years better by that point. Mm-hmm. And by that point, I had already worked with a few signed bands, like Misery Index and uh, Arsis and stuff. Oh, okay. And, yeah, so I had already already had some experience. Uh, my studio was making me a living, I didn't need much to live back then because I lived in an apartment and my rent was like four hundred dollars, <laughs> and then <laughs> I awesome. had like a fifty dollar a month phone bill and I split it with my girlfriend. So I, you know, all I really needed was my studio to be booked one weekend per month, and I mm-hmm. was cool. But uh, but I was making a living off of it and pushing it and pushing it and, pushing it and starting to record signed bands. So by the time the Hinderers was going to happen, I was a little bit better. However, even though. It's self-produced. I knew that I still wasn't good enough for the final product. Mm -hmm. And we hired a dude named James Murphy um, to come in and mix it because he was better than me. I figured that if we could get a better mix, like a pro-level mix from someone that's connected, that could help us get closer to the goal of getting a deal. Sure. And it did because he's the dude who shopped us and helped us get signed. So, um, so
0: you recorded The Hinderers before you got signed. I didn't realize that. I, th- I thought that that was like your, your first album as a signed band. So that, that's interesting to know.
3: We recorded 10 songs off of The Hinderers before we got signed. And then we added like five songs after. So um, Subterfuge, From the Blind, Festival of Mass Soul Form. Damn what other ones cosmic forge and two more (laughs) i'm forgetting which ones were recorded for the hinderers after we got signed okay
0: and did do you find i've never listened to those songs outside of the album is there any difference really to you in the the later songs that were added versus the stuff that you had recorded previously
3: um they were more advanced Mm -hmm. i think like uh I just think that Subterfuge and From the Blind, for instance, Mm -hmm. um, they just sounded like more gelled songs. The riffs were more... um, They had more intent behind them. We were starting to really figure things out. We were figuring out how to have choruses and how to have the song go up, then down, how to to incorporate the technicality and the guitar solos that were later going to become like a big mainstay of what we did Mm -hmm. and how to incorporate the synth without it being super annoying.
0: Right. Yeah. So it's it's adding and not distracting.
3: Yeah. Um, And let me uh, make one point. Okay, please. About the Hinderers. There's a song on there called Dead on the Dance Floor, which gets (laughs) a lot of uh, a lot of hate. (laughs) And I just want everyone to know that uh, that I got outvoted by the label. On that, I did not want that song on the record. That was a joke song. Um, Really? Huh? Yeah, yeah. It was a joke song. It's got some pretty cool riffs in it, but that song was not ever meant to be like a real song. And it was one of these instances where the label knows best. And uh, yeah, well, they even put it
0: out as a single, right?
3: Yes, they did, and they got one of the (laughs) dudes from Nine Inch Nails, I believe, to uh, do a remix of it. It, that that to me was a mistake, uh-huh. um, but uh, but hey, it is it is what it is. But I just, <laughs> <laughs> I just felt like throwing that in there.
0: Well, I, I remember you know hearing that song and it's different. And it, at, at the time, I had already been a fan of Nine Inch Nails and you know bands like Slipknot, that type of thing. So it wasn't really alien to me. It was just kind of huh, that's kind of different. Okay, moving on, next song. You know, but uh, it's interesting to hear that it was kind of shoehorned in there at the last minute.
3: Yep, it definitely was. And it's not that um, I had a problem with synth. There's synth all over the record. Mm -hmm. It's just that one was real dancey.
0: Yeah, it is. It it definitely feels like a different kind of product.
3: Yeah, I don't dance. (laughs) (laughs) We we don't dance. That wasn't our thing. So, yeah. So that kind of threw people off. And I think that it actually hurt us. A little bit. Did it you ever play us. it
0: live, or no? You, yeah.
3: No. <laughs> right. <laughs> we didn't know how to play it live. We never. We never <laughs> even tried.
0: Of course. That's funny.
3: Yeah, it wasn't supposed to be played live, but I think that it hurt us in that a lot of the uh, metal press heard that song and thought weird things about us. Mm-hmm. And it's like, God, if you guys only knew that we got outvoted on this one. <laughs>
0: Well, it's interesting that you bring up the metal press because I remember at the time looking you know, I'd seen you guys live. I picked up the hinders I was like reading some articles about you online and it kind of talked about how Doth had this whole kind of Kabbalah fire uh. to it. And then by the time the concealers came out, it was like, quit fucking asking us about the Kabbalah, which I thought was hilarious because it's kind of like, you know, you get caught jerking off in a grocery store one time and you're the guy who jerks off in the grocery store.
3: Well, that was on Mike Cameron. <laughs> yeah, just jerking off. Not to say that he was jerking off in a grocery yeah, store. Yeah,
0: no, not to say that the Kabbalah has anything to do with jerking off the grocery store. But no. you, see, you get my point.
3: Yeah, yeah. That was um, that was on Mike. That was what he was into. Mm-hmm. And I guess Mike was our original vocalist. And he had this whole thing with it. Like, that was his thing. A hundred percent. None of us were into it. And... The label, I feel like, didn't entirely know how to market us, and we also didn't totally know how to market ourselves. It was just uh, one of these um, baby band issues, and that's what they decided to run with. But the problem was that none of the band besides Mike even cared about that shit.
0: (laughs) (laughs) So when Mike left...
3: So, yeah, so when Mike left, it was just like, finally,
0: <laughs> we can talk about other shit in an interview,
3: <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, um, I really wanted to talk about other stuff in interviews before that I wanted like I wanted people to I wanted to talk about the guitar thing, um yeah. because I felt like we were we were doing stuff that was ahead of its time guitar wise the the whole guitar shred craze didn't come back until years later now it's a whole thing Mm -hmm. but back then it was not a thing we were holding the guitar flag loud and proud um and I wanted and I still think that Abel is one of the best guitar players walking the earth Mm -hmm. um and I know that anyone who's heard him agrees with me and I just wanted that element of the band to be to be respected I wanted us to be known as a musician's band Mm -hmm. Which a lot of people did eventually know us as. I didn't want to be known as this like weird occulty band because we're not into that.
0: Well, it's interesting you would say that because I you mentioned working with Arsis earlier, and they are a band that I think of being hyper technical, but not as necessarily catchy as Doth was. I mean, Doth was able to do sweet picking and things like that, but also have a catchiness to it that you would find yourself humming an hour later.
3: Well, that was, that's why I thought we were cool. Yeah. Um, <laughs> right? That That's what the whole idea was that, like, we can fucking play, but, like, our shit's catchy and groovy. Yeah. And it's deceptively technical. Like, we're kicking ass on guitar and there's blast beats and double bass and all this stuff and it's crazy. But, like, you walk away humming these riffs because we all listen to pop music and, uh, I grew up on the Beatles and stuff. And to me, that's way deeper than, some mystical bullshit. like I think that the feeling that music gives you is uh, you know connects you to something far far deeper than any sort of superstition or whatever. and so I wanted to focus on that. I just right, wanted sure. to focus on us as a badass band, a badass heavy band with badass players that was kind of ahead of its time for back then. It's not ahead of its time for now, but for 2006 and seven it was. And, uh, and yeah, I was not into the whole Kabbalah thing. And by the time <laughs> we could get rid of it, everybody in the band was like, fuck yeah, <laughs> no more.
0: Well, it's funny you should mention wanting to focus on guitar, because listening to the albums back-to-back this week, I was really taken by how the guitars are pushed to the fore for the concealers. I mean, that is just a heavy, bumping album, man.
3: Well, we chose Jason Stukoff as a producer in part because he's a phenomenal guitar player.
4: Mhm.
3: I mean, he's better than just about every guitar player that he records and he's also a, a musical genius and Mike was a super talented guy and he had a lot of a lot of great ideas and I felt like him not being in the band anymore was a bit of a loss creatively. Okay. Um You know, I I look at it like a team, right? Like everybody brings their strengths to the table. Sure. Um, And I always felt like Mike was able to give this like melody that tied everything together or this idea that none of us would think of. And I knew that Jason was capable of doing that. So there's part of part of the choice of going with Jason was he could do that. He could fill that gap. He was also a fucking killer guitar player. And so for sure it was going to be a guitar record. Mm -hmm. No way around it. And uh, (laughs) that's what happened. Jason also is really not into synth or anything weird like that. Okay. And, And that's probably where we disagreed the most with him on because we all love synth. We all love heavily orchestrated stuff. But it was still cool to do a pretty stripped down metal record. Sure. It was a nice, a nice change of pace. And, you know, artists that reinvent themselves every time, I like those.
0: <laughs> well, I like the, actually, I find myself gravitating towards the weirder songs on the album, kind of a Wilting on the Vine and uh, "Poison Sorrows are two of my favorites off of that release.
3: Those are pretty cool. Um, Wilting on the Vine is probably the fan favorite from the record. Mm-hmm. And uh, Poison Sorrows, I'm really, really glad we got to do that one because it's just so different. And it also goes off into synth land, which sure. was cool. It was good that we got a chance to do that on the record. Um, my favorite's translucent potency, though. It's just about as dark as it gets.
0: <laughs> nice. So after the concealers. Doth is really, to me, a lot more dynamic in texture. It kind of backs off the guitar, but there's always something different going on, some different sounds. A couple of tunes I dig off that one. Double Tap Suicide, is fucking great. The Decider. Uh, Nat God, talking about something with, like, kind of simple riffing that just crushes. I dig that song so much.
3: Thanks. Uh, that record, in my opinion, is the exclamation point at the end of the sentence. Mm-hmm. Because I feel like it combines everything that we did. It combined crazy guitar with catchy songs, with synth, with non-traditional structures.
4: Mm-hmm. And it was Absolutely. super
3: high it was super high energy. And we recorded it in a way to where it's hundred percent natural. The drums are natural, and it's a quiet record in that we left the dynamics in on the mastering. We just wanted we kind of knew that it was the end of the road for us. And we wanted to make a statement like we actually played this, like this is us. We can actually do this shit. Mm-hmm. Half, you, half or more of the bands out there in metal were just starting to fake everything and everything live was on tracks. And it was our, our little like line in the sand, I guess, that we're going to go out with a record that uh, actually represents what we're capable of. Mm -hmm. And one of the cool things, speaking to what you said about it, that sometimes we pull the guitars back, um, we would write a lot of that on guitar, and then we'd be like, what would happen if uh, right here we remove the rhythm guitars and we transpose it into just synth? Or in Double Tap Suicide, over the guitar solo, originally that had a heavy guitar. We removed it and turned it into acoustics strumming really really hard and it's actually more intense that way.
0: <laughs> awesome.
3: So we really really played around with non traditional arrangements trying to see just how, how far we could push the songs. And uh I think that they went pretty pretty far. I mean that record is nearly impossible to play. And uh I don't know how we thought of some of those arrangements. <laughs> they're they're pretty out there. I think it's pretty catchy, though.
0: Oh, absolutely. And so you were able to tour on it hard, though, right? You guys went out for a couple of years after that?
3: No, no, no. We only toured once on it. We did the U.S. with Chimera and Europe with Fear Factory, and that was it. I oh, went wow, okay. to, I went to uh, Audio Hammer mm-hmm. to start my my next the next stage of my career. And uh, I guess Kevin then went to Suffocation, and the rest of the guys went to Chimera.
4: Mm-hmm.
0: So, so you had kind of felt at the time then that you had said what you had to say in Doth? Yes. Is, is that sort of why you stopped?
3: Yeah, basically. I mean, it was all, it was a combination of things, but I remember that when we were making that last record, I'd have moments where it was like, okay, this is what I've been working towards. Mm-hmm. This is what I was trying to say musically. It's It's done. Like, I got it out. And then when we were playing live, I felt that way, too. Like, I felt like, okay, this is this is it. This uh, this chapter's closing. And I think that for the other guys, they kind of felt it, too. We weren't making that much money. And uh, we're all just starting to feel it, basically. And I think that they felt it differently than I did, because since I started the band, I had a different connection to it than they did. So for them, with not making as much money from it and it not getting as many opportunities as they would like, that you know the clock was ticking more for them. For me, it was more of, uh, since this is the thing that I started in my head before I even met any of those guys, mm-hmm. uh, for me, it was more it had run its course, and it was time to move on with life,
0: huh, if that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So, so tell me, having done a lot of different things, what did you find the most challenging? Touring as a musician and having to perform every night? producing and having to have that attention to detail or teaching where you're trying to engage somebody else's mind and get thoughts or processes in there to help them improve themselves.
3: Let me add something to that because the teaching is just a very small part of what I do now. Mm-hmm. Um, the Nail the Mix and the URM Academy are a whole business mm-hmm. where we have like 12 employees and things are things are intense. I barely do any of the teaching content anymore. I'm more making decisions and keeping the trains running on time and being a boss and an owner, which is a very different very different than just being a teacher. So it started as online education mm-hmm. and I mean that's what it is now. Obviously it's on online education companies, but it started as me being an instructor for creative live and doing courses for them. And it turned into a business that I own with Joey Sturgis and Joel Wanasek, where we have a whole community that we've built, uh, dedicated to learning how to mix and produce better and better and better. And I think that the challenges are different. Um, they're completely different. I think that, with a band, you've got the challenge of the physical wear and tear of being on the road for so long. You know, I screwed my back up permanently from that. And the weird drama and politics that go into everything <laughs> right. in a band sure. between the labels and what tours you get and inter band. That to me was really, really hard. And I hated that. And when I went into production, there was still that element there. Because you're working for bands and labels, right? Um, and I hated that too. There, but production was a step easier for me because um, I'm more of a mastermind type thinker. I, I like to think big picture and and like get a team to go there. Like uh, that's kind of more my thing. So I enjoyed production and mixing a lot more. Mm-hmm. But it was still not exactly right for me. So that ran its course. This is the most at home that I've felt. And again, kind of like taking it back to the beginning of this conversation, you asked me if it was difficult. This is very difficult. Helping people get better is very, very difficult. Helping them understand that we're more valuable than the random bullshit you find on YouTube is very, very difficult. Getting them to stay with us is very very difficult getting Mishuga to agree to do this with us <laughs> is right. very very difficult like this is fucking difficult but I feel very suited for this mm-hmm. uh, this makes a lot of sense and um, Nail the Mix and the URM Academy have grown it's the most successful thing I've ever done it's far more successful than Doth ever was and it's far more successful than my production career has been it's orders of magnitude bigger than both combined.
0: Yeah, I mean I I don't know if I can speak for Doth that way, but you reach more people. I mean, at any given time in production, you're, you're working on one band at a time. But when you release a podcast you are potentially reaching a lot more ears and getting into a lot more minds.
3: Yeah, and the podcast is just one little part of what we do. I just take the podcast very seriously because first of all, I love good conversation, but second, it's a great way to spread the word about what we're doing. but the podcast is definitely just is the tip of the iceberg with uh, with what we're doing, and as you know, I mean you've you're a hundred and fifty something episodes in you know how hard it is to uh to keep something going. um it's a lot of hard work, and that's just one small part of it, but this is. Basically, a platform by which we can reach people and um, and convince them to come over to our school, our online school, and actually get better at mixing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Well, I have to say, I I
0: thoroughly enjoy the podcast, and a lot of it, I'll admit, is over my head. I mean, I know kind of basic stuff at being a podcaster for production, but I always appreciate the fact that a I think that you're really good at delivering constructive criticism in a very honest way, where you might be kind of bagging on the guy or his work, but at the same time you're giving good information, you're probably making the guy laugh a little bit, and he appreciates you know, why you critiqued his mix that way, and it's going to make him better. I think you do a very good job in that, in a singular sort of way.
3: Well, the mix crits are a very particular kind of episode, because um, we don't like doing them, really? and yeah, you, do you
0: do a really great job at it I gotta say
3: Thank you Well we know how much people appreciate them um, So the thing is we don't like doing them because it's tough to listen to that many mixes and then give people judgment. It's like a weird it's a weird headspace mm-hmm. but so we try to make it fun right okay so that's kind of our our unspoken trade which is if we're gonna take the time to listen to your mix and talk about it, Because we listen to a lot of mixes. So if we're, again, if we're going to do it, we're going to have a good time doing it. And that might mean that we're going to joke about it. If it really sucks, we're going to make fun (laughs) of it and we're going to have fun. But the thing is that we have not had a single subscriber hit us up and complain about us being too harsh. If anything, we've had the opposite, that thank you for telling us the truth. Thank you, because nobody that I could nobody that I know would ever tell me the truth. My friends always say, Yeah, it sounds good. Everybody always says it sounds good, but I'm not getting new clients and my clients keep on going to somebody else. And you guys were the first ones to actually tell me that my low end monitoring is way out of control. And I have you know, and I have to get this together and that together. We've got nothing but love for our mixed crits so we've kept we've kept them going and but we try to and i'm serious about this we really try to do it from a from a place of love and helping because we don't ever want it to cross the line into just being mean for the sake of being mean or anything like that if if we bag on something it's just us amusing ourselves you know, trying to have a good time.
0: Yeah, no, I think that comes across loud and clear in the episodes, that it is from a place of love. And I think that what, that's what makes it such a great teaching tool, because, you know, people people get that, that you can, you can still have fun with it, but learn something at the same time.
3: Well, it's interesting. We brought a guest on once to do a uh, mixed crit, and he crossed the line. I'm not going to say who it was. We actually took that episode down. He crossed the line and was just fucking mean, and like it made me super uncomfortable. Like I've seen where that line is. Okay. And this guest that we brought on was just horrible. <laughs> it was just so bad. It, it, it was just it was just like venomous. It was straight venom. And we actually got some people, um, like friends of mine, hit me up and we were like, "Hey, man." Uh, it's not cool to bag on your subscribers like that. Like they're paying you and they're not paying you to get insulted. They're paying for you to help them. And I was like, I know we brought this guy on and we should have known better. We shouldn't. It's kind of like, have you ever seen when Piers Morgan, that guy that took over for Larry King uh, brought uh, Alex Jones on his show? Oh, right. Yeah, sure. And Alex Jones flipped out and started screaming and, Pierce Morgan looks shocked, and it's like, "Well, what do you think is going to happen <laughs> when you bring a maniac on your show?" <laughs>
0: exactly. Of
3: course, he's going to freak out. And uh, I should have known better and not brought that dude on. But, but we take it so seriously that we don't do that. That we actually took that episode down, and it's no longer no longer available. Okay. But the podcast really, like I like I said before, it really is just a small part of what we do there. It's um. But it's cool that there's no paywall because a lot of the other stuff we do is behind a paywall, Mm -hmm. um, subscribers only. And the podcast is available for anybody who has internet and it's our, it's our way of being able to still, uh, still reach people that want to get better at recording and mixing or who want business advice, you know, who aren't behind our, our paywall. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Well, I have to say, you know, I really appreciate that. And like I said, I've followed you for a f- few years. And I like to talk to people on the Bone Bat Show who kind of find what they love and do the shit out of it. And I really find that, that you approach things in a very thoughtful, analytical way, but you still have fun with it and the love comes through. And that's pretty cool. So I, I appreciate you taking time to uh, chat with us here on the Bone Bat Show, man.
3: Thanks for having me.
0: Oh, absolutely. So, you know, one last question we always ask all of our guests on the show. Ale, what pisses you off, man?
3: What pisses me off right now today is when people misjudge their own level and point to things that outliers do, like freaks and outliers, like, that are really, really great. Mm -hmm. They point to things that they do, which aren't necessarily good as an excuse to justify themselves slacking off. (laughs) Like for instance, I rented my studio once out to a film crew in a local band a few years ago. They're filming a, uh, an unplugged video where this band was sitting around playing acoustic guitars and singing. And they uh, were really out of tune, so bad, so bad that like someone said something. they were like, "Oh, it's okay." Allison Chains unplugged was had out of tune vocals. We can do it too. <laughs> it's like, what, what the fuck do you mean? Al-? Like, so you're saying that you're on par with Lance Taylor and Jerry Cantrell? Because like, that is that really what you're saying? When um, people do that too, when they look at Meshuggah. Uh, You know, Meshuggah has always kind of broken rules and done things their own way. Like they were one of the first bands to play live with a pod back when pods kind of sucked. But they sounded great because Meshuggah are great. They can make anything sound great. They, you know, had an album with just programmed drums. You know, they have an incredible drummer, you know, things like that. They broke a lot of rules and always managed to be crushing while breaking rules. But it's because they're so good that those rules don't apply to them. They are that 1% outlier who just, or less than 1%, 1% of 1% outlier that it doesn't matter what they do. They are so good. They are so badass that it's going to be great. And it bothers me when people point to things like that. Well, oh, Meshuggah pitch shifted their guitars down an octave. So we can do it, too, instead of having bass. And it's like, no, motherfucker, you're not Meshugga. Right.
0: You're not that totally. good. Yeah.
3: You're not Alice in Chains. Like, get some fucking reality yeah. in your head. So, yeah, that pisses me off.
0: Well, what I love about Meshuggah particularly is, you know, you, you see bands who who might play sloppy. And then you notice, like, Frederick is looking up at the ceiling because he's counting. You'll like, be oh, watching yeah. misuga They're fucking counting, man. They're doing math the whole time they're on stage. That's so badass.
3: Of course they are, man. They're, they're incredible. They're so precise,
0: yeah. Just an amazing band.
3: So uh, right now on Nail the Mix, if you want to actually mix Meshuggah tracks, go to nailthemix.com slash Meshuggah, and uh, you can actually download the tracks for Monstrosity by misuga And at the end of the month, Chewie Madsen, who mixed the latest misuga album, we'll be doing a live class for subscribers of how he makes it. We also have a mix competition where you can enter to win an Ibanez eight string. But That's super fucking was, cool, man. That's yeah, really that's, cool. It, it's pretty badass. we I mean, we've done this with Gojira, Periphery, Machine Head, Papa Roach, uh, all kinds of badass artists. We do this every single month. Uh, that's what now the mix is. But when I looked through the Meshuga tracks when they got sent to me, My first thing was checking out the guitars and the bass because I wanted to know is it real? (laughs) It's fucking real. Like, they are that tight. Yeah, no, they they are. are. They are that solid. Like, they are so tight, it's scary. And I can tell when something has been edited together Uh versus when something is just that good. And they are just that good.
0: Yeah, no, they're a tremendous band, man. (laughs) All right. Well, uh, thank you again for joining us on the show. Where can our listeners find your stuff?
3: Okay, you can go to NailTheMix.com or go to NailTheMix.com slash Meshuggah and uh, you will find everything you need or if you just want to check out the podcasts and stuff, just go to URM.academy. That's academy. Yes, that is a website.
4: <laughs>
0: All right, man. And uh, why don't you tell our listeners about this next song?
3: All right. This next song... You talked about this song, and so since we d- talked about this song, I feel like this song would be cool to play, and it's also a fan favorite and a band favorite. This is a song called "Double Tap Suicide," and um, someone hated the name because they thought we were making like a guitar joke, and it was not a guitar joke. It was "double tap" as in double tap with a gun. Yes, in case you fuck, in case That's you fuck I up gather. the first. <laughs> yes, in case. We were making a joke about a guy who tried to shoot himself and missed. (laughs) So he double tap it just to make sure you don't you don't screw it up. So because we hate guitar humor, Um, like we really don't like guitar humor because I don't think it's funny. Um, So it kind of offended me when someone told me they didn't like guitar humor and that's why they didn't like the song it's like it's not guitar humor you <laughs> fucking idiot it's suicide humor and suicide isn't funny but we have a black sense of humor and uh that's how it goes but anyways the song is really cool and has lots of very interesting sounds on it i got to use a uh, baby blue strat on it for the intro uh i was inspired by satiricon on it and we also tried to employ lots of tempo changes like you would hear on older Slayer records and lots of odd changes um, like we drop bars throughout and we still think that we managed to make a pretty catchy kick-ass song and one of the coolest things about it is the arrangement decisions in the solo where we drop the electric guitars and substitute them for acoustic guitars and also the outro Has a very interesting arrangement. So it's just an interesting tune, but it's a banger. It's fucking fast, difficult to play, and it's intense and just awesome. And enjoy. This is A.L. Levy from Nail the Mix, URM Academy, and Doth, and you're listening to The Bone Bat Show.
0: All right. Once again, thank you to A.L. Levy for the awesome interview and spending some time with us talking about Doth.
1: So, dude, you got any weird shit this week? Oh, man, I do. I do. From uh, from out in Texas, believe it or not, uh, the man was just uh, arrested for having sex with a fence. Wait, what? (laughs) Not near a fence. Not through a fence. With the fence.
0: So it was like a hole in the fence, like the whole Pyramus and Thisbe type of deal?
1: I don't know what that means, but that sounds hot.
0: (laughs) (laughs) The bard was a hot, hot man.
1: Yeah, no, this was was a, a guy, he was, apparently he was taking a leak on his neighbor's fence. And this was a chain link fence. And when she saw him urinating on her fence, she became um, upset. At which point, he began to make lewd gestures through the fence. One thing led to another. <laughs> she continued uh, taking video with her phone to show the police when they arrived. And sure enough, she uh, showed him the showed him the footage, and there he was in all his glory doing the fence.
0: Uh, it sounds like a novelty hit.
1: Doing the fence. <laughs> yeah, with a novelty dance. Sure, why not? You know, Travis County Jail. Bail said at uh, 2500 bucks. by the way. That's... <laughs> I thought
0: you were going to say, Bail set at 25 bucks.
1: <laughs> <laughs> or one post hole digger. Whatever you can come up with.
0: <laughs> That's kind of offensive. Uh, yeah, so... Huh. What are you going to do? I, I don't see any upside to that entire story. <laughs> There's no winners there.
1: No. Where's the winner? What? You tell me. I don't know. The fence. Maybe the fence. <laughs> Even then. Maybe you like to get beat on. I'm sure that the fence, Maybe it's just felt for president. Di-
0: the fence felt dirty and used afterwards.
1: Yeah, probably so. Here I am a hurricane fence. I never get blown.
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That was almost as bad as that offensive joke.
1: Yeah, almost. almost. And yeah you know, probably two-thirds of the country doesn't even know what a hurricane fence is. They don't call it that.
0: Alright, how about another tune?
1: Yeah, I do it, why not?
0: From 2009's The Concealers by Doth. This is Sharpen the Blue. Yeah. Once again, that was Sharpen the Bleeds from Doth, taken from 2009's The Concealers. You can find it at music stores near you. So, dude, how about a little multimedia
1: triage? Hey, sure, why not? I read a book called The Dry, certainly not about your mom, <laughs> uh, by Jane Harper. Yeah, which how was a uh, It was a pretty good book. Jane Harper's her first uh, novel, and uh, it was it was a good one. It was about this cop. He works in a financial crimes division in the big city. This thing's set in Australia, and his childhood friend has killed himself and killed his family in this terrible murder suicide. Jesus. And yeah, it's a you know it's a comedy. No. So he goes back to this shitty small town where he grew up, where they're having this terrible drought. And he goes back for the funeral. And his friend's parents ask him, you know, essentially, look, you're you're a cop from the big city, and this is a, a small little town with a new uh, police chief who just started, like, the same day this thing went down. And could you please look into this for us? Because just in case it's not a murder-suicide in case there's more to it. So, of course, it's a small, shitty town with all these small, shitty town memories and politics, and he gets sucked back into it. And, you know, the the more he's there, the longer he ends up staying and gets gets deeper and deeper into this place that he thought he had seen the last of years ago. And it's, it's a well-written, fast-read, fun book. Uh, I could easily see this being a movie... Um, I'd like to read more books by this woman, but she doesn't have any more books yet. So check it out. The Drive. It's, it's a cool book. Cool. All right. Uh, what else have I been doing? Been, got a new game on my phone. It's been a while since we talked about a mobile game. This game is called Biko, I think. B-A-I-K-Skull-H. Oh, maybe it's <laughs> B-I-A-K-O-H. Okay. And what it is, is it's a it's a tile spelling game, kind of like Tetris, where blocks are dropping, and each block has a letter. And you just have to keep spelling words out of these blocks that fall in order to make the blocks disappear. Real simple concept. But as you go, there are power-ups you can get, and there's different kinds of tiles that drop down that that interfere with what you're trying to do. They'll freeze other ones around them, or they'll... They'll pile up, or there'll be a bomb that you have to spell something with before it blows up and wrecks a bunch of tiles around it, and makes them so you can't use them. It's a fun little time waster, and I find that I'm doing it more and more and more to the point where, uh, you know, you're playing this game on the can and you've discovered your legs have fallen asleep.
0: <laughs> Jeez! <laughs> so,
1: hello. I'm pretty sure found. that means I'm sure that means five stars in somebody's book. <laughs> So, Bico, check it out. It's available for uh, Android. I understand that eventually it's going to come out for iOS if you have one of those candy-colored devices. But if you got a real phone, you can play it now. And cool. it's free, but it's, uh, you know, typical. If you want to unlock some more things in the game, you got to pay money. I don't pay money.
0: Nice. I, hey, guess what I paid money for? What would you pay money for? Re- Sex? Resident Evil 7 Biohazard.
1: Oh, that's that lasts longer than
0: sex. Holy shit, dude! It's that almost as scary too. I, I told you about this when I played like the little demo at Pax. the yeah. game is so fucking scary. It is preposterous. Like the first night I got it, I played for about three hours and I had to like take a break.
1: It was just you too did? much. Yeah. you can watch like eighty hours. I of whole like, right? Consecutively. And
0: thank God I don't have PlayStation VR because I don't think my heart could handle it. <laughs> so so it starts out, you're this this gentleman and your wife went away to do a babysitting job at this house in the bayou and disappeared for three years. For three years? For three years. So she ah. emails you and tells you that she's okay, but don't come find her in the bayou. And so <laughs> the first thing, you're okay. like driving out to the bayou in the first scene. And so you get out there and you start wandering around on like this dirt path and you, you see this guy walking back through the woods. You follow him and you come to this shitty looking house. And on the ground in front of you is this smoldering fire pit. And you pick it up and your wife's purse is there with a bunch of clothes that have been burned and her driver's license. Now, at that point, I would walk back to the car and... Go to the police, but that's not an option in this game.
4: The only thing that
0: you can do is go forward into the dark, shitty house. (laughs) Beyond any kind of common sense that you would actually have. Oh, my God. So, yeah, so you get in there and terrors ensue. You're chased around this house by members of this hillbilly family. We're trying to kill you, and you're trying to get to the bottom of what's going on. Your wife, with your wife. Meanwhile, it ties into the whole zombie backstory of the Resident Evil franchise as a whole. So there's interesting stuff going on. You do a lot of searching for parts. There's a a lot of things are kind of puzzles to get through to the next area. But uh, you do that, and then people pop out from behind you and scare the shit out of you. So, totally fun game if you like that sort of thing. If you don't like having the shit scared out of you, you may want to avoid this one because it is terrifying. I mean, I am not a lightweight, and it gave me the heebie-jeebies, so
1: be warned, but totally fun. Frankly, there's a lot of poop in this episode, Steve. Maybe too much. Speaking of uh, zombie-type things, watch The Santa Clarita Diet on Netflix. You watched that? Yes, I did. I thought it was wonderful.
0: I'm actually a really big fan of Timothy Oliphant. I loved his uh, work in Deadwood. I really enjoyed Justified. And so it was really cool to see him in a different kind of role where he's not just like this stone-jawed sheriff. He's kind of a goofy character as this husband who is totally freaking out about the situation he suddenly found himself in. And that situation is...
1: Well, that his wife has become a flesh-eating zombie. Exactly. And his wife, whom he loves very much, and he's going to stick with her no matter what, sweetie. He wants together. To be supportive, but
0: it's just kind of getting to him. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and I thought it was totally fun. I really enjoyed it. The uh, yeah. neighbors get wise, and hijinks ensue.
1: The teenage daughter is great. Yeah, she's that actress great, and, is great. And
0: even better is her friend, the next-door neighbor. That kid mm-hmm. is awesome. Now yeah, no, the casting is really good in it. It's a fun, very light story. I think it's eight eight or ten half hour shows. Yeah, I think it's ten. And it's a, a lot of fun. So yeah, definitely check out Santa Clarita Diet. It's it's Oh one one warning though. What's
1: that? Oh they, they, it's fucking gross. Oh, i not I wasn't gonna warn anyone about that. <laughs> I wanted them to find that out on their own. No. The way they end the series is is a complete setup for season two. Do you think everything's going to get tied up? No. You're going to get hosed. I'm they use... want to do another season, and so they didn't end season one with any kind of an ending. That's the <laughs> only downside to this.
0: Yeah, because there's no other shows that have ever done that before. Like, Yeah, you know, Vikings. some of
1: them do it a little bit more than others. That was what
4: made me so mad about Vikings
1: season one. But at least Vikings season one, it ended, and then it had like this oh, and hey, we're, we're going to do this extra thing now so there can be a season two coming. You know, another This s- just doesn't really even end.
0: <laughs> right. You know, another series that uh, reminds me a lot of Vikings is
1: Black Sails. Oh, my gosh. Thank you for getting me into that. I've only watched three episodes. I've already seen 40 to 60 <laughs> cubic buttloads of blood. And 238 boobs. Yeah, there's blood, all the blood and
0: boobs you want. And you know what? You're only episode three. The show's not even good yet. The show starts getting good about episode five, episode six of season one, and it gets consistently better. And right now we are like the second episode of the current season, season four. So we're only a couple episodes behind and it's really good stuff. I mean, I kind of had the feeling that it was sort of low rent. And the first season it is. Remember when Vikings started and they had, like, one Viking ship? They had a ship, yeah. (laughs) It took a while. But then by, like, season three, they got this budget they had cashed in. And so, all of a sudden, the sets were great. They had the cast of thousands and all that stuff. Pirates very much has that sort of a thing going for it, too. But there are amazing scenes of pirate battles and ships in storms. And crazy shit that happened in the later seasons. It's totally good. It's a series on stars. Uh, I'm able to currently watch all of it for free on Comcast Cable, so your mileage may vary. But it's very good. And uh, especially if you have a hankering for some pirate action, you won't find any better. And in Season 3, I think Blackbeard comes along, dude.
1: Blackbeard was in Episode 1, Season 1. Was he? Uh, she, Yes. No, he, Blackbeard. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, in episode oh, season one, I you know may recall t- there was Blackbeard, and uh, Blackbeard was a woman. Yeah,
0: that's not exactly what I'm referring to. Oh, okay. No, Edward Teach, actual Blackbeard, is uh okay. Ray Stevenson from Rome, plays Blackbeard, and he's really great at it. It's fun, so good stuff
1: coming for you, man. All right, cool. Well, I'm looking forward to it. I'm like I said, three episodes into this, and that's saying a lot considering of all the uh, Film Fest stuff I've been watching. No kidding. And you know, it's
0: weird, because all this Film Festival stuff, and we've both had time to go to the movies. Yeah, we both saw Johnny Wick. John Art, Wick 2. Part 2. Was so goddamn much fun. It was a fun movie. That is a true bullet ballet, man. Not since John Woo stuff have you seen <laughs> such fun gunfighting in a film. And there's this one scene in particular where John Wick is fighting this other bodyguard, and they're punching each other while rolling down a flight of stone steps. And it was freaking hilarious because it, it was just like the most painful-looking thing ever.
1: That Yeah, that, that scene was just... That had to be so brutal to film. <laughs> All I, can I guess that was is the that, last like, thing that they filmed. Those were
0: like like rubber steps that they put over something. That was a set. And it was all spongy the whole way down. That's all I can I hope
1: add. so. I, 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 I just hope so. they were
0: hitting those stairs so hard. <laughs> they didn't appear to have a lot of give in the movie. And, the, and then there's this one other scene where the, these two assassins are going through a mall, and they're like surreptitiously shooting at each other like... Two kids with rubber bands in That's a That's exactly what I was going to say. Like two kids shooting each other rubber bands
1: trying not to get caught by like the teacher.
0: Yeah, it was hilarious. So, oh, such a good movie. Really loved it. You got to go see it.
1: Yeah. And uh, the other thing I've been watching is Legion. Now, I know nothing about this Legion character except what I've seen in the series. Mm-hmm. So I don't have any any preconceived notions about what this character should or should not be doing or saying or acting like or anything and it's it's a fun it's, it's the origin story of this hero who apparently has boundless powers, he's probably the most powerful mutant and he, all his life has gone on thinking that he's actually just insane That all this stuff that's been happening isn't because of him but because he's cray cray <laughs> Right, and I spent- uh, it's
0: fun I spent a lot of time watching that show going, wait, what? <laughs> <laughs>
1: yeah, is, it, is it not like you remember in the comic books? I've never
0: read that character in the comic books. I did just find the show confusing, but awesome. It's put by Noah Hawley, or it was created by Noah Hawley, who's the same guy who did the Fargo series that has been ongoing, which is freaking amazing. And so, they're about
1: to do a season three. Too. Yeah, it
0: doesn't surprise me that the show is very good, but I have no idea what's going on. Uh, a couple, yeah. of, a couple more films I saw recently. Get Out is freaking awesome. Go see it. It is a great 90 minute horror film. That's all you need to know. Alright. And, uh, I will see it.
1: Logan. And it's directed by uh, Peele of Keegan yes, Peel, right? It
0: is. And, you know, it's just, it's a really well written, tight little horror film. And, uh, it's a, a slight twist on th- some tropes you've seen before that clearly he's a horror fan and he knows his stuff. And he's willing to twist it a little bit, but it's with a loving eye. And I thought the the film was a lot of fun. I took the whole family, we all watched it together, and we all enjoyed it. The last film that I saw recently was Logan, the new Wolverine movie. And it's I essentially, hear that's the uh, feel-bad movie of the year. It's like the comic book Unforgiven. It is totally depressing and sad, but it has more actual character feeling in it than probably any comic book film ever. So that alone, I mean, you wouldn't want to go see it every week, but it was a different departure on comic book movies in the same way that Deadpool was. Just something completely different and refreshing and a cool watch. So I hope you dig that as well.
1: I saw a movie that I really wanted to see in the theater just because of the people in it, and I missed it in the theater, so I rented it. its a, It was pushed real hard by Ira Glass, who has some other podcast, Probably not as big as the Bone Bat Show, but uh, I think he's a producer or something. And it's got Mike Brabiglia and a, a, bunch bugger buggera? Other, buggera, 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 a bunch of other a bunch of other comedians. That uh, just a whole bunch of really funny people are in this movie, and so I I was psyched to watch it. I was looking forward to laughing, and if you want to see a movie that just really makes you laugh do not fucking watch this movie. <laughs> <laughs> really? It was so depressing. Oh my God, it was just the most depressing movie about like failed dreams and disillusionment. I uh... don't know where they got off calling this thing a comedy except that it had comedians in it. God, yeah. Wow. Yeah, don't there, Think there's... Twice should have been called You Won't Laugh Once.
0: There is always that, that uh, sort of sad clown propensity for comedians to be fucking morose and you never know when it's going
1: to strike. Yeah, well, you know, I think the comedians as a whole are probably some of the most screwed up people there are. I mean, short of like cannibals or serial killers or something. <laughs> okay. I mean, you look at your basic horror writers, they're all pretty together group of people. You look at your basic group of comedians and it's all full of like and abuse and suicide and, you know, these are people that that kind of take their pain and, and make something out of it. <laughs> I Just, there's a lot of really, really, you know, damaged people in comedy, I think. And I don't think you should ever allow them to put together and make their own movie and then call it a comedy, because it's not. I mean, I love me the Patton Oswald, but you'll be the first to tell you that... <laughs> He's not a happy guy. Yeah. Greg Giraldo? Yeah. Uh, could go on and on and on. So, Down, so didn't don't it? watch that film, I guess you're saying. Watch that movie if you want to watch like some some poignant movie about uh, how tough it is to make it as a comedian in New York. It's probably a good movie for that. Okay. But that's not what I was sold I was sold a pastrami sandwich. Instead, I was handed a basket of sorrow. <laughs>
0: <laughs> All right. <laughs> well, on that note, why don't we listen to something a little more uplifting? Uh, this is another one from Doth from their self titled 2010 release. This is not
2: God. <laughs>
0: Again, thank you so much to Ayal Levy for joining us on the show and for allowing us to share the music of Doth with our listeners. Uh, I would also like to thank Gord, our Bonebat Film Festival sponsors. Oh, yeah, we should thank our Bonebat Film Festival sponsors. We haven't thanked those folks yet. And once again, after, you know, this is our seventh year, and they came through again in a big, bad way with financial support, with prize support with uh you name it any number of ways that they help us make this happen and uh we really appreciate that so i'd like to give each and every one of them a shout out first of all scarecrow video who will be providing some uh prize dvds and blu-rays for us to hand out at this year's fest thank you very much
1: and fantagraphics let's thank those guys
0: Got a whole box of graphic novels for you guys from them. Yes, thank you very much. Uh, Corner Comics as well. We got a bunch of comics from them to hand out, as well and, as Mac and Jack's Brewery, who we will be offering a beer special from once again
1: at this year's fest. You stepped on my line, man. I was going to thank Mac and Jack's. Now I'm thanking Zippy's Giant Burgers. Thank you, Zippy's Giant Burgers. A new sponsor, of course, for
0: the first time joining us this year. How did those burgers look that I posted on uh, Facebook?
1: Those looked like some delicious burgers, Steve. Were delicious. I ate them both. (laughs) You're a monster. I'm a beast. Speaking of beasts and monsters, Stalker Farms (laughs) farming the beasts and monsters that you can go hang out with Halloween season at the Stalker Farms Haunts.
0: None scarier. Also, Vortex Video. The local best place to find used DVDs, music, albums, all kinds of great stuff. This is the kind of store I love to spend time in. And Darren does a great job curating a lot of cool stuff that you want to buy. So visit them in Kirkland.
1: And another longtime sponsor, Games and Gizmos. These guys have been with us since go.
0: And they moved this year. They've moved uh, across uh, town in Kirkland. And they've joined up with Vernon Wells, which is a social club based around gaming and other-like interests. So, uh, if you're interested in a place to go and game that is tied directly to an awesome game shop, check out Vernon Wells. It is very cool, and they were also a new sponsor this
1: year. And... Pathfinder.
0: Yes. For a long time, the Pathfinder role-playing game has been a sponsor providing games for us to give away as well as novels for our swag bags. And they will be doing the same
1: again for our seventh festival. And speaking of reading material, Belladonna Magazine. Yes, the Horror Honeys. New
0: endeavor, which is awesome. Uh, they did a review of our last Bone Bat Film Festival in their first episode, and uh, it's really cool to have them on board.
1: Speaking of uh, really cool to have on board, Dolcetta Artisan Sweets, because everybody loves some good chocolate, and that's what Dolcetta Artisan Sweets is all about. She makes the best chocolate. She oh, really yeah. does.
0: And what is awesome about it is each bar is handmade with love. She spares no effort to bring you delicious chocolate, which is really damn cool.
1: Yeah. And Dark Horse Comics.
4: Oh, I love
1: those guys. How can we not love those guys? We talked up Dark Horse Comics, various offerings for years and years and years on the show, and they've been with us for years and years and years at the Film Fest. They have. Home of Hellboy. Need I say more? Nope. Say no more. Flying Saucer Pizza, the pizza that was there, (laughs) Festival One. That's
0: right, absolutely, and uh, they're back sponsoring us once again. Last year, uh, they gave us some t-shirts and some growlers and some other cool stuff to give away, and uh, this year, I'm expecting the same thing.
1: And we've got uh, GT Printing Equipment, another long-time sponsor. They've been there since the uh, jump? Yeah, since the jump, sunny California and uh, the Lone Star Estate, Texas together join in natural harmony supporting the film festival in washington it makes sense
0: that's right bringing the culture to the people what more can you want and finally jerry Jerry Cooch! cooch jerry always steps up with a great big sponsorship and uh you know i i i want him to know we don't take jerry for granted he's a heck of a guy We really appreciate it, and uh, thank you so much to Jerry and all of our sponsors once again for helping make the 2017 Bone Bat Film Fest happen. It's only a month from tomorrow when we're recording this, so uh, it's coming up on us fast and furious. Tickets are available now through our Square store. You can find the link at bonebat.com. Buy your tickets now. It's going to be a great freaking time, and you don't want to miss out.
1: That is it. That is it. That is all. This show is done. All right, man. Our usual bullshit. You
0: can reach the show at 425-296-6557 or via email to steve at bonehand.com. Got new content at bonehand.com infrequently. It's also the home of the Heavy Half Hour.
1: And I'm over at mightywombat.com. Haven't been doing much blogging, but I consistently churn out a cartoon or two every week there. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's true. And if you would like to see me not do a damn thing on Twitter, I'm at Mighty underscore Wombat on Twitter. Also, have a Facebook page, and we have a Facebook page for the show.
0: Absolutely. Uh, that's the great place to go to find out news about the fest. Uh, actually, starting tomorrow, we will begin the countdown with a trailer every day. For the next month leading up to the film festival so visit early and often
1: i put a film related uh short on on our facebook page today do you see that nice i did not see that i'll go look you should it check it out right now well maybe not right now but <laughs> well like in five soon. minutes. yeah
0: uh i'm on twitter as well as bone hand over there and we do have a bone bat twitter feed where you can follow festival news all right. Thank you for listening once again. And if you like what we do, please spread the word and tell a friend. One final tune this week from Doth. We're going to go back to the Hinderers in honor of its 10th anniversary and, uh, play the final tune, the, the title tune. As a matter of fact, the Hinderers. I hope you dig it. Once again, this is Steve. This is Gordon. Have a good one.
1: I do have a good one.
0: it in the can. That's the important thing.
4: Oh! Uh-huh. Oh, hey. hey! And we liked it.